The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week, my guest is the travel writer Sarah Wheeler, whose new book is a memoir of her travelling life, Glowing Still, A Woman's Life on the Road. Now, Sarah, I want to start, if I may, with the title, because Glowing Still sounds immensely upbeat when one sees it on the cover of the book, and it sounds like it's a kind of sign of, you know, continuing vitality and excitement Mm. and still all that energy. And then I find the quote, which you quote J.A. Baker's The Peregrine, from the 1960s environmental book, where he says, toxic chemicals have produced, quote, a dying world like Mars, but glowing still, which casts the title in a slightly more melancholy light. What was it that made you choose that? I think it's about the best one can hope for when one uh, crashes through the barrier of 60, don't you, Sam? Although you wouldn't know, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I felt that it gave some hope when the large part of one's life has gone by. Um, I was thinking about Martin Amos, who said that when you turn 60, you've got this whole new subject that didn't exist before, the past. And that was very much on my mind when I embarked on this book, which, as you say, is a look back at my travelling life from my 20s, nubility and all that goes with it, to my 60s, invisibility, the grey hair of invisibility, and it's really to chart my progress through all of that. And it is the past, so hence the dead planet like Mars. It's all happened. But I like to think there's a bit of a, well, spark is much too optimistic a word, but glow in the old girl yet. And when I approached this task of looking back, I got my notebooks down, got the uh, kitchen stairs up into my office and took all these notebooks down, which were arranged um, in no particular order on my shelf. It had all had the name of a country on the spine, sometimes several countries, where I'd been writing for all these many decades. Some of the countries were written in Tipex on the side. Some had very, were very strange bedfellows. St Helena, Fiji, I remember two were next to another. And I got the books down for friable pages crumbling in my hands. And I realised that I'd often left out the best bits. And I wondered why that was. And... I think it was partly in the early years I was afraid that people wouldn't take me seriously. Some of the jokes and funny stories and stuff that made me look like an idiot, I'd left out. That was, I now see, the unwise. I think maybe it's because now, in my 60s, I'm afraid people will take me seriously. And to a certain extent, I think the narrative of this book, as as all those stories unravel, is about the tension between those things youth being so desperate to be being taken seriously and now the opposite is being true and I tried to make connections between all that stuff and to spot stuff in the notebooks that I hadn't mentioned some of it's pages and pages and I thought why didn't I put this in and to make links between things which sometimes I think you can only do looking back I hope there are some themes in the book I don't know what you thought narrative themes because I didn't want it to be a disparate collection of anecdotes and I tried to pick out the things that had been important to me then and still are important to me now and there were things 
And those are what I clung on to, really, as um, I tried to make a book out of it with a start and a middle and an ending. And when I ran out of steam, I tried to use what I thought were funny anecdotes as ballast. I've always felt, I mean, the Antarctic, where I sort of became known as a writer, if I'm known at all. My third book, which was about seven months I spent in the Antarctic. It's Terry Incognita. That's right, yeah. And there's a few anecdotes from that that have stood the test of time. Notably, the one about the scientists, um, the Mackay Glacier, who were in position for three months. And if you're in position on the ice camp for three months, it's worth making a bit of an effort to set up camp. And they drilled a hole in the ice, which was 12 feet thick there over the Southern Ocean. It's a hard thing to do, by the way. Kept it open and basically put a port loo over it with a lovely polystyrene warm seat and a windbreak glacier. It was the most best appointed Kazi in the whole world. And um, one day when I was carrying some something across the camp, a scientist skidded in front of me with his wind pants around his ankles. I said, crikey, Mike, what's happened? And he'd been sitting on this Kazi and a seal had come up. And apparently it's hot, fishy breath and all the rest of it. So I relied on stories like that when I felt perhaps I was getting a bit too much into the metaphorical territory of glowing still. So it's a book about Antarctic lavatories. And um, when I started tackling this, I thought, goodness, you know, what I really want this to be about is about how women perceive things and how women have written about travelling over the decades. So I rang up Dervla Murphy, sadly now the late Dervla Murphy, is a friend of mine, of course, been knocking around together for decades, and she was very helpful to me when I started out. And I said, you know, Dervla, what about it, the business of what's the difference between being a man and a woman on the road? She said, oh, you want to read Cameroon with Egbert again? And remember that anecdote? She said, when I, people always used to get mixed up about whether I was a man or a woman, and one bloke said to me, are you? female or male in Cameroon and she said so I lifted up my t-shirt and revealed my tits so that was another of the anecdotes so it's about tits and lavatories and a whole load of other stuff that I tried to smuggle in between all those stories I start off it's a 10-page introduction and I thought this is a travel memoir but it's not about the memoir of my life because nobody's remotely interested in that but I thought I better say something about the soil from which I grew which was 1960s Bristol. So I tried to do half of that 10-page introduction is really about that and about how different the world was in the 60s and how perceptions of women were very different. I mean, everybody knows all of that, but I tried to root it in specificity. But you did move very fast and far even before you went on the road from that very narrow, conservative, lower-middle-class, non-conformist kind of Bristol background, this very insular world, and you were gone, weren't you? Yeah, it wasn't for me. I was gone when I was 18. And yeah, it wasn't for me. As you say, insular. There was no unconscious bias. It was all conscious. We didn't like anybody who wasn't like us. And I think that influenced me very deeply, along with, of course, many other things that influenced me. And the world in which I grew up looked inwards rather than outwards. And when it did look outwards, I didn't like it. With great regret, now, all these years later, I look at what's happening with migrants and refugees and so on, and I think, how far have we come? We've gone backwards. I talk in the book about, I was trying to sort of set the scene of 1960s Bristol, and the year I was born, Tom Stoppard was in Bristol, luckily for me, in terms of looking for sources, writing for the Western Daily Press, and um, he did a load of tests then in the 60s, Uh, early 60s, going around, for example, to accommodation agencies. 
sending in a person of colour ahead of him. No room, no room. And then Stoppard would go in and say, yeah, they would say we've got plenty of room. And he said at the time, he wrote, you never meet anybody who doesn't like the coloured man. It's always the landlord or the person down the street or the neighbours. It's never the person themselves. And I found that 60 years on hugely demoralising because I do wonder how far we've come. But as I say in the book, it's the writer's duty to have hope, I think. And you touched on the sort of paradox of the title, an extinct planet, but glowing still. And I think that there's a lot of things I set out in the course of the book, like what little progress we've made, indeed, regression in many aspects and how many flares of hope I've seen in my adult life in feminism and in politics and so on have died out but I still end up on a note of hope because I do think it's the writer's duty and I think there always is hope somewhere or other you just got to look for it don't you think yeah well I I hope so I'm intrigued by a a sort of paradox I tease out a little bit almost every travel book is in some sense a memoir isn't it you know, the writers always bring their sensibility. They're always describing what they've done and what they've been through. So what was it that changes this for you? Is it returning to the same material from a different angle or with a different sensibility? It was partly that, but I think more it was the accumulation of time that made me see things differently or made things coagulate in a way that enabled me to impose a pattern on them and give them meaning, or a pattern emerged rather, which I think it doesn't at the time. It's of course true what you say, that every travel book is deeply subjective. However much the writer uses the first person, they might say I all the time, like many travel writers do, or they might say I never, like Bruce Chatwin, but it doesn't make any difference because everything is seen through the prism of the writer's vision. That's what a travel book is. So... Striving for objectivity, okay, we all do so in many ways, but there's a pretty much inbuilt fail there in that we are seeing everything through our vision. And I think when I look at my top travel writers, the the trick is, of course, is that they have to get the reader on board early on, make you like them. In this book, of course, I had that great advantage of not having to say very much about each place, whereas when you've got to do 100,000 words about one country when you've signed up to do a book. You're rather squeezing juice out of the material in some cases. But in this instance, I could just pick out what fascinated me still now. Some of it had become obsolete and old hat and wasn't very good and overtaken by time and I've been overridden by other concerns and so on. So it was fantastic. I absolutely loved doing it, Sam, because I could just junk all the stuff I wasn't interested in anymore. I didn't think it was any good, which was a lot of it. And just pick out themes and try to lead the reader by the hand and say, this is what I saw then. And, hey, this is what I left out because I was embarrassed about it or because of this and that. But now I'm prepared to say, because I don't really care anymore, I don't have misgivings because I think it's important I'm going to say it. So I'm sad it's over now and I've got to get back to more of the real thing of not being able to take this grand sweeping look back over so many decades and that's what it is, really. It's the book here. It's glowing still. It's uh, trying to engage with themes that have emerged over all those decades. And as in every book, anchoring them in specificity, whether it's the Antarctic toilet or the sale of a Dow in Zanzibar, where I end the book, or a million things in between. I mean, you're a writer. You know that the specificity is the key, key to everything. I mean, I'm interested in the drive, what makes you, you know, made you want to be a travel writer, because you talk about this background you had that wasn't for you. Is it as simple as saying it was 
finding something that was maximally different? I mean, I know you talk in the book about this concept of HIMAT, of a kind of longing for a, a homeland. And you say that anchors a lot of other travel writers, but you don't have it, do you? No, I don't have it. I wish I did have it. I have that other fantastic German word, Kindschaft, the landscape of my childhood, which I could hold on to, but there's no longing there. I acknowledge belonging, and maybe my kind of high mat is an acknowledgement of that, of belonging somewhere. I did belong there. It's where I come from. I was very rooted, my family, my genes. I'm very rooted in that place. But there's no longing. Dervla Murphy, to quote her again, writes in her brilliant autobiography about cycling through the streets of Dublin and seeing ghosts. And maybe I have that aspect of high mat. As for you ask me again what made me a travel writer... I mean, who knows? I think that the main thing probably was that I always wanted to be a writer and just I can't really explain why. The rigid structure of the journey, just from the word go, appealed to me. I mean, the train timetable, the train carriage, the the Tao moving across the monsoon waters, all of that specificity anchored the landscape for me and so that I could weave in ideas and things that are so much harder. The function, I guess, of plot and character in a novel. I'm not um, a fiction writer. I feel I was born a non-fiction writer. And somehow that framework of travel appealed to me. And in the same way that the other thing I do is I've written a couple of biographies and I'm writing a third one now. And I've written a lot of biographical essays. And I find the structure of the life has the same effect as the structure of the journey. It anchors me. All my life writing stuff is cradle to grave. People have done it other ways, but that's not for me. And I find that structure, like the journey, beginning, middle and end, just naturally to me as a writer, gives me something to hold on to. I probably agree with novelists, a posh novelist, who think, I know they think it, some of them say it, that fiction is a higher calling than non-fiction. And I probably think that's right, but that's okay. We don't have to all go for the highest calling. Of course, poets would say that uh, poetry is the highest calling of all, and that's probably true too. So I'm happier on the lower slopes, and travel writing is perceived even by non-fiction writers, of course, as uh, lower slopes. Famously, many travel writers don't like being called one because they think it demeans them. I absolutely do not feel that at all, because I think I deserve to be demeaned in every possible sense and have no aspirations to rise higher up the mountain. And uh, I find it amusing, all these stories of, you know, Chatwin giving the cheque back when he won the Thomas Cook Travel Book of the Year aboard. I'm not a travel writer, and half of them go on about it night and day, and I absolutely don't feel that, and I think it's a pity, because I could cite many writers, let's start with Norman Lewis, who are absolutely up there, with anybody. So where did this idea come from that travel writing is in some way littler? I don't know. I don't share it. Who are the travel writers you look to? You do talk about there being a sort of male canon with which you've got a certain amount of scepticism as sort of (laughs) the country is like a kind of mammoth to be beaten to death outside the cave rather than something to be taken in. I mean, how... Who do you look to and admire and who do you think gets it wrong? Right. Well, first of all, the I've got a big one school, people who see places to be beaten to death, very, very typical of the Antarctic, the polar regions. I've spent a lot of time in both polar regions. And a lot of the men who've written about that do perceive it as something to be conquered, beaten. And in general, the I've got a big one school is about seeing how dead you can get. And it doesn't really appeal to me. And I think that women in the genre over the years, over the decades, over the generations, have been much less interested in conquering. 
I'm thinking of foreign correspondents, Martha Gellhorn, I cite many times in the book. She was writing The Fighting for six decades, as you know, and she said that the open robe was her one and only true love. And she also said, I do not wish to be good, I want to be hell on wheels or dead, all of which my sentiments entirely. And she wasn't interested in conquering, she wanted just to speak the truth. And many other female writers I cite in the 19th century and earlier, I tried to go back beyond the Victorians. Many wonderful Victorian tweed-skirted travel writers, you know, my favourite title is Kate Marsden, to Siberia on horseback to visit lepers. And I feel that the Victorian, as a cast, the Victorian, a cast without an E, a Victorian spinsters in their tweed skirts have got a bit of a bad rap, a reputation for being barking mad, but benign spinsters, not to be taken seriously like their peers, the walrus whiskered tribe at the RGS. And some of them are really good. And I think it's a pity that they've devolved into figures of fun. So I tried to look back. I've got some great 18th century, 17th century travel writers. And the earliest one I've got is Egeria, who rode her donkey into Jerusalem in the 4th century CE and sent letters back to her friends, Lights of My Lives, she called her girlfriends. And so I tried to show this long tradition of women perceiving the world, well, observing the world and not trying to beat it into submission. The generation above me, who I'm grateful to for really bringing travel writing back into the fold in the 70s, absolutely golden age of travel writing, the late Jonathan Rabin, much missed, and his cohort, they're, they're not of the I've got a big one school, but I think that there was a lot more emphasis on the sense of self and their observation looked inward and outward at the same time in a way that I think women's don't. That said, I do have a lot of role models. I've already mentioned um, Norman Lewis, who's probably my top bloke, 20th century in the field. Moritz Thompson, an absolutely brilliant book. Very bleak writer by your account of it. Yes, very bleak, very brilliant. And I think there's a truth in the bleakness that shines really like a diamond and achieves universality, which is what we all strive for, is to achieve universality through specificity. Well... I hope I'm not speaking for out of turn for other people, but I assume that's what all writers strive for. I don't know if you'd agree as a novelist that, uh, you know, to achieve some kind of universality. And, you know, somebody once said about listening to Schubert makes you feel that all you feel has been felt before. And that is so incredibly helpful. And that's what the best travel writing can do. I mean, you read a paragraph of Jonathan Rabin's book about going down the Mississippi, in my opinion, his best, and you feel through the very specific stories he tells, an empathy. And that's because there's some sort of universality evoked. It's a really hard thing to do. And perhaps that gives me automatically more empathy with the women of my tribe because, well, blokes and women, they do feel different things, don't they? Speaking of empathy, do you recognise the 20-year-old Sarah Wheeler setting out to the Antarctic? I'm wondering how much connection and continuity you see in your work? You know, have your motives changed? Has your sense of yourself or the world changed as time's gone on? Well, that's a very good question. I agree with Ian McEwan, who said that over the age of two, nobody changes very much. It was very tender getting down those notebooks, as I said earlier on in our conversation, and meeting the younger me. It was like meeting myself coming back. I did recognise myself. 
I thought I saw that young woman clearly, but I know enough about the fallibility of memory now, Sam, to know that that may or may not be true. So the answer to your question, as the answer to so many questions, I suppose, is yes and no. There were preoccupations, I said, and I tried to build on them, the things I'm interested in, which is the things that most people are interested in, I suppose, really. The big God question, religion, the big politics question, and feminism, in my case. I came of age at the, I caught the break of the second wage of feminism. And I saw that manifesting itself in the things I was interested in. I saw myself early on in the notebooks homing in on my advantages on the road as a woman. People go on all the time about whether it's dangerous. I just yesterday came back from three weeks in Colombia on my own and um, that's supposed to be a dangerous country. I didn't find it remotely so. Now with grey hair, one's a threat of a different kind, perhaps, as one was in one's 20s. Um, Have you never felt fear on the road? You talk about the sexism you experienced, which you didn't initially put into particularly terra incognita. It's kind of very male aggressive sort of thing but you you certainly don't talk about that lone woman on the road threat in that way was that something that you never had or never feared you say that the only time you ever feel afraid is in the curtain department of john lewis yeah that's true i remember the things i'm afraid of are all inside my own head or the shackles of domesticity really frightened me i think what i was going to say earlier is um, when i lost my thread is that um i see myself holding on to Things that make life easier on the road for a woman rather than focusing on the dangers. For example, I learnt more about Chile in the aftermath of 1973 and the dictatorship at kitchen tables had in the Andes when there was a woman and three children and nobody else because they would let me in where they wouldn't have let a man in because they thought it was extremely unlikely I had a weapon, concealed weapon or was going to rob them or anything. And I had access as a woman, which I think men don't get. And as for your question about fear, yeah, as you've pointed out, it's the John Lewis Curtain Department. It's um, the life within the head that really terrifies me. And I think on the road, one just gets on with it and you develop an instinct, really. I mean, I hate to think of myself as a role model. I've only got sons. If I had daughters, I'd frighten the life out of me that they would go off and do what I did. My sons are very keen travellers, but I hope they're not as fucking stupid as I was. However... (laughs) I think women do have advantages and I think there are ways of conquering fear on the road and off the road and one must strive to use those weapons to conquer fear because fear is the enemy stalking within. Now, you mentioned your sons. One of the turning points in the book is you say, you know, you had children and you went travelling with them. How did that change things? I mean, you know, when you talk about travelling, you quote various people, including, I think, Gellhorn, saying that, to be on the road is a, an effort to sort of be authentically and independently yourself, I'm paraphrasing, but obviously the boundaries of the self are kind of compromised when you have children. How did it, you know, did it make you more authentically yourself before or how did it affect your travelling life? Well, I kind of feel it didn't affect it at all, but obviously Memra is working on my side and I've got, I'm invested in believing that. I had to put it into the book because it would have been extremely strange to leave it out. But I do think stories about travelling with children are an all crashing bore. So I just had one chapter out of 10 where I tried to answer the question that you've just asked me. Um, how did it affect it and what was it like? tried to tell anecdotes and stories about what it was like on the road. From a practical point of view, I remember I took my youngest son on a newspaper assignment herding reindeer with the Sami in northern Sweden when he was a baby and I was breastfeeding him and one of the very nice Sami herders produced some 
foil and said you stick it down your bra and it reflects the heat back and makes breastfeeding easier. I tried to keep horror stories like that to few, but as I've said, specificity was the thing. And then I tried to share um, how things evolved as they grew up, all within this one chapter. I kept it to that and how they became enormously disrespectful of me. The story I tell about that is in a California hotel room when one of them was 15. And it was just at that time when there was a Song and dance about introducing that blue British passport, load of old rubbish. And Newsnight had called me to say, will you appear speaking about this? And I was very pleased to do so because I'd had enough of hearing little Britainers going on and on about um, how this was um, the best thing and all the terrible implications of all of that. So uh, my kids were in the motel room with me and one of them got banned outside because he was rude and then stood outside the motel window and Stephen Sacker was interviewing me and when my son outside the hotel window saw my jaws moving he turned his back to the camera and dropped his shorts and that was very embarrassing so all kinds of things that evolved and you talk about the authenticity of the self and how that changes when you have children it's kind of seriously damaged I think in some way but then it becomes a new authenticity altogether which can never really change Because once they've flown the nest, as mine have now, they're both adults, it's not the same as it was before. I'm realising that now because they're always there. I'm delighted that they are always there, I mean, inside my head. So one becomes a new self, as one does through all other experiences through life that people who don't have children also have. So I tried to kind of jumble all that up. And I cited some other writers who'd, uh, notably all women, who'd travelled with kids. Men don't seem to do it. The best, people often say to me, you know, practical for listicles, what's the best thing you can have if you're a travel writer, the best sort of Swiss army, is it a Swiss army knife? And the answer, of course, is it's a wife at home to do all the domestic stuff. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you really need, is a wife to do it all, as um, so many of my role models and my predecessors have. But I guess um, those below me, and there are many, many, I mean below me in age, obviously, the travel writers coming out behind, they've all found their own ways of doing it. And maybe they'll find some tiny thing in glowing still that I did, or maybe they'll just laugh at the whole thing and perceive me as I perceive my Victorians, as, you know, well, I quaint as a like crinoline. This, but I like the sense in the book that really comes through of how much your travel writing is framed by, and indeed your life, is framed by your reading. I mean, you say that in order to kind of negotiate this issue of selfhood and motherhood, you kind of plunge through reading Julia Kristeva, which is a sort of very highbrow baby manual indeed. Um, Yeah, and you remember what I said at the end of all of that, that I wanted to shoot myself. (laughs) Yes, no, it was a kind of downbeat note to end that chapter on. But when you're travelling, you're often, you know, when you're in the American South, you're looking for Faulkner and Carson McCullers. You know, your time in Russia was framed by Chekhov. You've got a whole sort of range of... I'm wondering, do you, before you set out on a trip, effectively read a little library of the local writers, or is it just that you're investigating something that's already in your literary mind? Well, both of those things. Reading is a similar journey to travelling, and it's a dialogue between the inner self and the outer world. And I've always thought that reading and travelling are parallel journeys. That's partly what led me into doing what I do. And whether I do it before I go, yeah, I try to do it before I go. Sometimes I don't have the opportunity. Sometimes it's stuff that's in my head anyway. And I find that mediating the world through the writers who've been there before me, obviously the the good ones, way better writers than me, mediating my own observations through them, I've just felt, Sam, as always a natural tool 
And I want to give voice to those writers who've influenced me. And I think I've got something to say, particularly in this book. I tried to give voice to some of them whose voices, I think, have been muffled. I think he someone who comes into chapter one, Maeve Brennan, who's a New Yorker writer, an Irish New Yorker writer, who I admired vastly, who was a traveller inside her own head. And I, like many in the book, I'd never felt she has got the recognition she deserved. And it's a pleasure and an honour for me in my work, and always has been, to let other writers whom I feel haven't had their due have their voice and give voice to them. But I think the main thrust of the answer to your question is that I do perceive reading and travelling as parallel journeys. Always have and always will. And it's been natural to me to reveal that in the pages of whatever I churn out. How do the places that you visit, looking back on them now, in what ways do they speak to each other? You've talked of themes going through this book, because you really have been, as, as readers of the book will know, You've been absolutely all over the bloody place. You know, you people say, oh, Sarah Wheeler, she goes to Antarctica. She's a kind of snow and ice person. And then you're immediately off somewhere very hot and dry or you're Russia. I, mean, I don't know if there's anywhere you haven't been. How do you see those relating to each other? Are there some places that are more sort of, if you like, home turf for you? It's hard to detect from the book which those are. I would say no. I feel myself by nature a generalist, not a specialist. It's rather unfashionable to be a generalist, but somebody's got to be one, and I am. So I'm always tackling something completely new. So after I'd written the Antarctic book, I wrote a book about biography of uh, Apsley Cherry Garrard, so still in the Antarctic region then. And then later on, I wrote a book about the Arctic, I did a circumpolar journey. And I loved all of that. And I knew, Sam, that I could have gone on writing books about little wooden ships and the pincers of a flow forever. And publishers would have commissioned me to do so because there's so many fantastic stories out there. But I felt I had to escape from those shackles and cast myself onto new waters. Somehow the virgin territory appeals to me. It's the opposite of being an academic, I am, you know, where you go into the territory becomes ever tinier, uh, the period of time ever tinier, the aspect of someone's work ever tinier. I'm the opposite. And I suppose that's must be something to do with my nature wanting to have this enormous canvas rather than a tiny canvas and one wants to see the world anew to have any hope of being fresh rather than becoming completely extinct not like Mars not glowing still and I did feel that rather than returning which I've done rather little of I do write about some returns in the book but I've done rather little of it I think I needed that terra incognita of the blank page, the uncreased map. Now, it'd be very hard to put my finger on why that is, but I have always felt so strongly that I'm a generalist. You have said that I've been everywhere. I mean, people do say that to me all the time, but it's absolutely not true. And I dream of places that I still want to go. Still time for travelling yet. Just about. You also talk in the book about the various things that have changed. One of the arcs of the book, you start early on, you were just coming of age when Rachel Carson's Silent Spring came out. And, you know, when your first trip to Alaska, the environmental impact of what you were talking about was not yet as fully understood as it is now. I mean, how have the shifts in particular, you know, environmental understanding in in politics, I guess, when we're talking about you know, colonialisation and marginal peoples and the rise of identity politics. 
how have all these changes, and indeed, I guess, technology, i.e. we've now got Google Maps everywhere, how have they changed travel writing? Was it possible to write in a sort of way that was innocent of politics when you were starting? Well, first of all, the changes. When I started out, Sam, it was morally good to travel. It showed you were broad-minded, you weren't a little Englander, you were acknowledging the rest of the world and so on. It was good to travel. Now... It's flat out bad. You're a big villain. Why is that? Three reasons. Uh, Obviously, hydrocarbons, burning fuel, particularly aviation fuel, it's just terrible for the environment and wrong to do so in every way. Second, COVID, we know that's going to be with us for a long time. So taking our germs all around in metal tubes is, is a bad idea. And thirdly, voice appropriation. Travel writing is perceived as you're not allowed to, and quite rightly so in many cases, you're not allowed to tell stories that belong to other people, appropriating the stories, notably of the global south, which has been done. It was a sort of right of the of us um, in the developed world to just go and write about these people and steal their stories and tell them all and so on. All very bad. Those three things, I think of them as the three horsewomen of the apocalypse, has changed things radically. And there's a fourth one, a fourth horsewoman, which, of course, has been, we've been everywhere now. There's nowhere, you know, when Peter Fleming was hanging around in the great game, writing his fantastic books, there was an awful lot we didn't know about the Taklamakan Desert and Central Asia and all the rest of it. It was unmapped territory. And there isn't any of that anymore. So... What I, I ask all these questions at the beginning of the book of this is where we were and this is where we're going now. How is that going to change things? And it has changed everything wholly. Now, so the second part of your question, how has it changed things specifically on the road? Yeah, it's greatly regrettable that when I'm in Colombia, I'm checking the Guardian front pages every day on my iPhone. It's a great shame rather than coming back three weeks, stepping off the plane and saying, what's happened? It's great to be isolated. It's great also to have one's anxieties allayed that terrible things can't have happened to one's relatives because if they had, I would have known about it because somebody would have told me. It is great not to have to walk two hours to a phone box and find that it's not working as I did so many, many, many times in those far off decades. So lots of good and bad and there's no point in looking back and thinking of the halcyon times. Although, of course, I do. I mean... Sitting on a warm rock, twiddling the dial of a shortwave radio, waiting for it to crackle to life with that glorious World Service theme tune. I remember those days with enormous affection and nostalgia. But looking to the future, as you asked me to do, we are going to have to change our ways. And I certainly won't be taking quite such a cavalier attitude to setting off. And those women coming up um, below me, as I say, the generation below me, two generations below me now, they will have a very different way of seeing the world, but I have no doubt they will integrate all those horsewomen's steeds into their vision. The book's haunted by two unwritten books, maybe at least, maybe more than two unwritten books, particularly Hindu Choo Choo, which never got written about Jodie Stranger on the train, but also a book on the Bronx, which you spent a great deal of time researching, and obviously researched very deeply, What happened to those books? Do you feel a sort of unscratched itch that they didn't become books? 
Yes, I do. Hindu Tutu, I loved it. That was the working title that my late agent, whom I love very much, came up with. It never would have been the title, but I'd spent a lot of time on Indian trains. Um, I spent a lot of time in India in my late 20s. I had a column on um, the Calcutta Telegraph, as it was then. It was a column from London, but it meant I had a desk there and um, was one of the team. Anyway, I spent a lot of time travelling by train around India, and so I had this idea I'd write a book about it. But that was when I got pregnant, I was about to have my first son, so Indian trains were no longer suitable. I filed away all that material, and I must say it was absolutely fantastic to get some of it out and use it for this book. And I absolutely loved reading my notebooks. I'd forgotten so much of that, as particularly in the northeastern states. I'd practically forgotten I'd been there and... Assam and Meghalaya, and it was wonderful. And of course, I look back thinking, oh, if only I'd gone on being that carefree young woman and written that book and all the rest of it. But that's like wishing I were a different person. The Bronx was a different matter. Yes, I had the idea for the Bronx. In my 50s, I decided I wanted to go and live somewhere and sit there, slightly in response to the horsewomen, but it wasn't quite that yet. It was that I thought it'd be a good idea to sit somewhere. I'd always been fascinated by the fact that Manhattan is so well known and nobody knows anything about the Bronx at all, you know, of the New York boroughs. Nobody knows about the Bronx. I mean, my editors in New York, in Manhattan, had never been there. And I thought this was extremely odd and went there and I had a flat there and was absolutely riveted and fascinated by this place, which was like a palimpsest, you know, the waves of immigration, much more so than any other area. Also, geographically, there was a lot of green space and the tail end of Long Island Sound and all sorts of things about it I find gripping beyond belief. But this was a time of voice appropriation. And um, my New York publisher had a new boss who came in and she said it wasn't appropriate for people like me to be writing about the Bronx effectively what she was saying is they should be telling their own stories. Well, yes, they should be telling their own stories, but they couldn't. And so I was telling some of them for them in the hope that they might get a leg up to tell their own. I was giving people a voice who didn't have one, which I thought was the legitimate thing to do. By the way, if that editor, that publisher had known anything about Ogden Nash, she would have cited his famous poem, The Bronx No Thonks, but I don't think she'd ever heard of Ogden Nash. She recanted, though, as as you reveal in a footnote. He did recant, he did recant, but she never did. So anyway, that book, it just was sort of presented to me. It was the year of George Floyd and it just was suddenly revealed to me as a brick wall that there was no point in trying to smash that brick wall down. There was no point. Did you feel that was an injustice? I mean, it sounds to me like you don't completely buy the reasoning that was on offer. That is correct. Well, I buy the theory of the reasoning. Of course, the stories belong to those people and I'd much rather people of the Bronx wrote books about the Bronx But they haven't got the opportunity because of all kinds of structural inequalities. And maybe by bringing the Bronx to public consciousness a little bit, it might enable them to do so. There has to be a starting point. And in my tiny way, I thought writing a book about how a fantastically marvellous place it was in which to immerse oneself and to literally quote those people. I mean, their direct speech, the direct speech that I've recorded them and so on. I thought would elevate the place from the sort of sink of badness that Bonfire of the Vanities and all kinds of other things had consigned it, that it was just a place of darkness, just a place of darkness. And I thought in my small way I could bring it into the light, but the zeitgeist determined otherwise. It was extremely gratifying to be able to have a chapter on the Bronx in Glowing Still, and I'm glad you raised it. 
It's a place very dear to my heart that I look back on with great affection. Just to return finally to that theme about how things have changed, do you think travel writing as a genre, or as the genre it has been, can continue? I mean, you said there is a younger generation doing it, but is what they do going to resemble anything very much between about you know, 1870 and 2010? Yes, because I believe those young writers will find their own way of discovering the world anew, as travel writers have done since Idaria rode her donkey into Jerusalem in the 4th century CE. They will find a way, they will observe, the impulse will be there to get out on the road, see the wide world and travel, and they will find their own way of doing so. I believe that with, with all my heart. I mean, they are, they're out there doing it. And I think that to say it's over because we've done it and we have the privilege, it would be absurd. And I don't feel that in any way. The world doesn't belong to the travel writers of the past. Well, it belongs to those of the future now. And if they want to use the tiny, faint beams that we shine from our torches, then they can. And if they don't, then they cannot. But I do not think that travel writing is dead. It never has been dead, never will be. Sarah Wheeler, thank you very much indeed. Indeed. 